Good day, listeners. Jonathan Darty here with another edition of the Pure Sex Radio Program. One of our core values in ministry is story. It's often the primary bridge that connects people adrift in brokenness and addiction to the community of recovery and transformation. In this episode, our guest is Austin Couture, the founder of the Gentle Path Project, which is a place where people can share their stories and be encouraged in their journey to a better life. Austin shares his own story of recovering growth and the challenges he faced and insights he's gained in hopes that it will encourage others to start or continue their own pursuit of freedom and joy. To learn more about Austin and his ministry, visit gentlepathproject.com. For even more resources, visit bebroken.org or check out links in today's show notes. And please rate and review the podcast after listening to help others find it. Pure Sex Radio is produced by Be Broken, and we exist to help men, women, and families to move from sexual brokenness to wholeness in Christ and equip others to do the same. Now let's dive into today's conversation with Austin. All right, so we've got Austin Couture with us. Welcome, Austin. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate you having me here. Yeah, I was, ex- I was glad we were able to make this work because um, I got to meet you at the Sexual Integrity Leadership Summit, which you call SILS. Uh, this year, back in I guess was that May that we had sales April, yeah, or something like that. I believe it was. I think May. it was May, yeah. And um, it was great to meet you and kind of learn a little bit more about what you're doing with Gentle Path, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but I really wanted to have you on to to just kind of unpack your story. I mean, that's uh, a, a real high value um, for what you do with Gentle Path. But can you just tell us? Um, I guess first tell us a little bit about what Gentle Path is, and then let's back up and let's talk about how you got from where you started to where you are now with Gentle Path. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Gentle Path Project is uh, is the the full title of it, um, and I I kind of stole it from Patrick Harnes in a way because he's got a lot of his Gentle Path like at the Meadows, his rehab center, and his Gentle Path through the Twelve Steps and through the Twelve Principles and stuff. And so I really liked that idea of gentle path. That, that's what a lot of people remember from it. Um, but I really wanted to kind of take it a, take it a step further. Um, something that has been kind of, it, it's a, a recovery saying that, that we say all the time, you know, is progress, not perfection. And looking at kind of my recovery journey so far over the past three years and really my, my entire life, I've always kind of been working on myself, um, been trying to make progress in a, in a certain area. So I, I look at my life kind of as a project. And that's really what General Path Project started out as was just a project that I decided, you know, I'll, you know, can I maybe throw this together, get some stories of, of my own and from other people who are in the sex addiction and related addiction fields and put those together in a place where other people can hear them and hopefully relate to them as well. Cause that's what I experienced first that really helped me break out of denial and out of my shell and really get into recovery was other people's stories. So that's a little bit about uh, general path project, uh, what I'm, what I'm trying to do and how it started. Yeah. And so now let's, let's unpack your project. Let's, let's talk about Austin. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> let's well, let's I'll... start at the beginning. Like, <laughs> like tell us kind of where uh, some of the roots of your own personal story of addiction and everything started and then kind of how you eventually got to a place of, of recovery. Absolutely. So I truly believe that my addict, my, my addictive tendencies, that nature really started when I was five years old. 
Um, it was a moment where myself and my older brother, who's six years older than me, so he would have been 11 at the time, um, where he told me that I was stupid, I was ugly, and that no girl was ever going to like me. And as a five-year-old, I took that to heart. I mean, um, I, I don't believe I was in school just yet, or I was just starting school. And uh, where we lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, was kind of a backwoods home. We had a couple neighbors, but we had a, a pine forest and a ridge with uh, blackberries, raspberries, and stuff that we would go pick. But So we were, we were kind of isolated where we lived. And that was one of my first memories, was being told, you're stupid, you're ugly, no girl's ever going to like you really hit me to the core. And so he, he was more than just that moment, but throughout the rest of the time that he lived uh, in the same house as me until I was 12 years old, uh, he was pretty, pretty emotionally verbally abusive. He was also pretty physically abusive um, and even sexually abused me once when I was uh, seven years old. Once that I remember there could have been other times, not really sure, but at least once that I recall. So home was never really a safe place for me. Um, I felt pretty isolated at home. I was a middle child. I have a younger brother who got a lot of attention and a younger sister who was the only girl. (laughs) And so she got a ton of attention. So I felt pretty alone, pretty isolated at home. And also uh, within the church community that I grew up in and at school, I I went to a uh, Baptist Academy Christian school there in Knoxville. and. In kind of both of those environments, too, I, I felt pretty alone. Um, one of the first days of school, uh, I got picked up by a random lady who thought I was some other kid, and she kissed me on the cheek and said, oh, Buck, it's so good to see you. And my name is not Buck. Mm-hmm. I later found out who Buck was, <laughs> another kid in my class, but it was not me. And I, I was embarrassed. And I I remember just feeling embarrassed that all the other kids were watching me, and I, I felt like I was an outcast from from the very first day of school. And um, the other kids, I think, kind of picked up on that, and I, I quickly became um, kind of an outcast within within the school system. A lot of uh, bullying, name-calling, um, just a lot of that stuff. So school wasn't a safe place either, and then uh, church was, was kind of similar in some of those classes, Sunday school classrooms and stuff like that. So I, I quickly developed this very small, isolated demeanor uh, within myself, believing that I was stupid, that I was ugly, and that no girl and no people was going to like me. And so, uh, like I said, um, up, up to the point where I was about like 12 years old, uh, was I was pretty abused by my older brother. And when he, when he left, uh, I got to move into his room, which was actually the same room that I was abused in. Um, but that's when I really started to become sexually active as well was about 11, 12 years old or or so. There might've been some instances before that. I'm still trying to hash all of that out. But um, I remember stumbling across um, uh, provocative images and and stuff on, on the internet. I remember going to my grandparents' house and finding, you know, like the JCPenney magazines and Sears magazines and going to the, the women's underwear sections. And I'd, steal that magazine and go into their bathroom and masturbate with it and, and everything. I remember um, learning about uh, sexting and chatting with people online when I was about 12 years old, playing a video game on online with, with strangers. Um, So I was quickly brought into this world of sex and sexuality that I was not prepared for. 
Um, my dad had never given me a sex talk had never really explained any of this to me. And so I was feeling already very isolated at home and very isolated at church and very isolated at school. And so when I stumbled across, uh, people online that would want to chat with me and, um, talk, uh, uh, have erotic conversations and talk about sex and role play and stuff like that. I, I dove into it because I felt like, okay, you know, if I can do this, then maybe I'll be accepted. And that really continued on throughout the rest of middle school and high school. We ended up moving from Knoxville, Tennessee up to uh, Niles, Michigan area. It's southern, the southern part of Michigan. Um, if, if anyone ever uses, you know, the, the mitten, it's right down there near the palm, uh, right across the border from South Bend, Indiana. And uh, we moved there and the cycle kind of repeated it, repeated itself. Um, I was bullied again at school. Um, church wasn't always the best place for me. I started making some friends, but it was still felt pretty outcast. The only place that felt safe for me was uh, within my, my fantasy life um, or online talking with strangers. Mm-hmm. So that even continued on. I ended up meeting um, my ex-wife in high school. Um, and I had grown up in a pretty religious, uh, setting in, in churches and youth groups that, you know, told us, you know, just wait till you're married, then sex is going to be awesome. That was always the message that I was taught, you know, like sex is dirty, bad and sinful right now. But when you get to marriage, it's going to be great. And that's when it's okay. And everything's good then. And so I thought, you know, I've got this issue with, with pornography, masturbation. I can't stop. I don't, I don't know how to quit. Um, can't really talk with my parents about it because they, they're not really safe and and open to to talking about it. And so I guess I just got to wait until I get married. So, um, my ex-wife and I ended up dating for several years, all the way even through, through all of my college. Um, and then we finally got married, um, right after I was done, done with college in 2015. And, uh, so I, I remember, you know, getting married and, um, the first couple months was, was pretty awesome. And I thought, Ooh, man, I'm cured like this. This is it. God, you were right. Like if I just wait, wait for marriage and then have sex there, then everything will be okay. Um, but what I was neglecting, what I didn't realize was that it wasn't about the behavior that was seen on the surface. It wasn't about my sexual acting out. There was parts of me that were broken and that were, uh, needed healing, needed special care and attention that I was running from and going to the pornography and the masturbation and the chatting with women online. So sure enough, two months into our marriage, uh, I went running back to basically everything else that, that I was doing before started slowly with, you know, some pornography and masturbation, and then went back into chatting with, with women on a regular enough basis, um, off and on over, over the next few years. But we had eventually, um, moved from one part of Michigan to the other side of, of Michigan to Ann Arbor. Um, and while we were there, my wife and I at the time felt pretty isolated and pretty alone. And there was a buddy of mine that I had known from high school days and, and college days who had started a church down here in Missouri and said, Hey, you know, you're, you're feeling pretty isolated and alone there. Why don't you come move down to this church that, that I had planted, you know, come, be a part of it, get, get started. And we'll, we'll kind of help you guys out and stuff. And I had just 
was going through a parent's divorce at, at the time. And so I was, like I said, we were feeling isolated alone. So we jumped on it. Uh, we moved down here to where, where I live now in St. Louis and started plugging into this church. And things seemed pretty good at, at the time. Um, my wife and I felt like we were on a better a better level, felt more connected uh, with each other. But my issues with pornography and masturbation and chatting were all still there. Um, I was plugging in a lot to God and a lot to church. And I had uh, started out just as a volunteer, helping them out with with certain things. And then I got on, on staff to the point where I was working uh, part-time, 25 hours a week, uh, preaching once every other every other month or so. Um, I was co-leading their youth group with, with their middle school and high school students. I was leading uh, numerous uh, different teams, doing all the volunteer scheduling and a bunch of other duties um, at, at the time. And the pornography issue was, was still there. And at the, that point... Um, I was getting a lot of advice from the pastor and um, his his dad, who was also an elder and a pastor of, of the church, um, saying, you know, if you and your wife would just have sex more, then, you know, maybe you wouldn't be as tempted to, to act out these ways. Or, you know, maybe if you just sold a certain, like, sell your Xbox, sell your PlayStation, you know, maybe, maybe if you got rid of those things, maybe if you just had this accountability software. And if uh, your wife was receiving those reports and we were receiving those reports because we're paying for it, um, then, you know, you, then maybe you'll get better. And I was, I was doing all of these things that they said, Hey, if you do these things, then you'll be okay. And they got these list of things for me to do because the, the pastor had a pornography issue that he was able to just kind of stop by getting some accountability filtering software and, then, then he was good. So they assumed that if I would do the exact same, then I would be okay too. Um, it took about two years from the time we moved down there in 2016 to 2000. Um, no, I'm sorry, 2018 when we moved down there to 2020 uh, for them to finally have had enough. Um, we had gone through. Uh, two different interventions at that point where they pulled me in a room, told me, Hey, you know, you're hurting a lot of people. They um, told me I wasn't repentant enough. Um, maybe I'm not, you know, trying hard enough for God, trying hard enough for, for other people. And so they ended up letting me go from, from my position uh, at, at the church. And um, they handed me a piece of paper with hope quests information on it saying, Hey, you know, maybe you should consider rehab. And I, I was kind of frustrated at the time because I was like, well, I've, I've tried all these things, you know, I've sold my Xbox and my PlayStation. I've had all of these restrictions on all of my devices. I mean, my phone, my computer and everything else. I, I can't, I can't go anywhere, or do anything without everyone knowing where I'm at. I mean, my wife, my pastor, my friend, my, um, another pastor, everyone knew where I was and what I was doing at all hours of the day. And I could not stop acting out. <clears throat> and so, um, so I felt like everyone had kind of given up on me at this point. And I said, you know, if you guys think I need to go re go to rehab, let me check with a therapist because, you know, you guys have also said, you know, if you do all these things, then you'll be good. So what do you know about, about this? Right. So, my wife and I at the time were seeing a, uh, 
a therapist, a marriage therapist. Um, and I had already seen therapists before for, for my pornography issues. And I had seen two before, actually, this was the third therapist that I had sat down with. And they all had kind of said the same thing. The first one, you know, gave me some, some, um, advice to like track, track my progress, you know, uh, with a, like a calendar battle tracker thing. Uh, the second one said, Hey, you know, you're just, you're dealing with too much shame and your shame is, is the issue of all of this. And then this third one had said, well, you and your wife just need to have more sex. That's, that's the issue. You guys aren't connected. If you guys were better connected, then, then you'd be okay. And so I, I was frustrated. I remember walking into the office with, with them and sitting down and just saying, Hey, so this, this pastor thinks that I need rehab. I mean, you're the expert. What do you, what do you think? And I remember him finally, like it, it sit, sitting down across from me and saying, you know, Austin, maybe, maybe you do need rehab. You know, I've got some good scuba gear that can go pretty deep with you guys, but my scuba gear doesn't go to that level and you need to go to get some help to some people that are, that are more specially trained in this area. Um, so I decided, you know, therapist wants me to go, pastor wants me to go. My, my wife got on board and said she wanted me to go. So I said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll pack my bags. I'll, I'll go. I, this was right at the beginning of when the COVID pandemic was hitting right in April of, of 2018 or 2020. I'm sorry. I keep doing that. This was right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic in 2020. And so I packed packed my bags and drove from St. Louis to Hope Quest campus there in Atlanta and um, entered, entered it. And I was, I was terrified. I was scared. Um, one of the RTs there, a uh, guy that I, I love dearly to this day, still works there. Um, I remember him kind of taking, taking me through every step of the way. I mean, they did the strip search. They had me, you know, pee in a cup, make sure I wasn't, didn't have any drugs in my system or anything. And, um, just loving me the entire, the entire process. Cause he knew I was nervous. He knew I was scared. He knew I was committing to 90 days of my life being, being in this facility and every person along the, along the process was just so loving to me. And it was finally at the end of the day, I sat down on this. <laughs> it was a, faux leather couch. It was green. It was ugly. It didn't match like anything else in the house. And it's still there to this day. Um, but I remember sitting down in the middle of that couch because that's where they would, they would make you sit if you were a new timer. And there were about 12 other guys that sat around me and they all started sharing their story about what brought them to Hope Quest. And they all started with or ended with, Hey man, I'm, I'm sorry for what brought you here, but I'm so glad that you're here because this is what you needed. Um, and so they would share pieces of their story about how they felt lost, alone, isolated, numb, dead, burned out, um, lonely, and just all of these other things that I had felt practically all my life. And how each of their stories just, I felt so connected with, and I finally felt like I had found my people, like I had found home, like I had found where I belonged that first mm -hmm. night that I was there. And I'll, I'll never forget that. Um, it was a long journey while I was in there. Um, my wife at the time, um, told me at first that she was going to stay with me. And then uh, a couple weeks later when, I had kind of found out through some counseling that the church that I was going to at the time wasn't the healthiest 
for me. It wasn't going to be the healthiest for, for my recovery and made the decision that I wasn't going to return there. I was going to go look for some other churches at, at the time. When I told my ex-wife that, she told me that if I didn't choose to return to that church, then she would choose to separate from me. And she she did just that. Um, so I, I, I didn't think she was serious at the time. I, I, divorce was never a word in our vocabulary. Um, separation certainly wasn't either. It wasn't, wasn't ever an idea. But before I left HopeQuest, uh, she had already moved her half the money to another bank account and gotten her own place and um, told me that I need to find find a place to live. So I was homeless for about two months, um, living in a guy's basement before he kicked me out and had to find a job and a place to live real quick. Um, about half a year later, she told me that she wanted a divorce. She didn't see any, any change in me, didn't think that I could change. Um, thought that I was just a narcissist and couldn't, couldn't make any, any progress. So she decided, you know, I'm, I'm done and I'm going to pursue a divorce. And it's all been a really, really difficult journey. Um, but if I had to go back and do it all over again, um, and make that choice at, you know, five in the morning to, kiss my wife and my dog goodbye, knowing that I would probably never be in the same room with them again, or that things would never be the same. I would do it. Not because I don't miss them. I, I do. I've moved on, but I do. I miss what we had. But recovery is so much more worth it than the way that I was living in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't life that wasn't living, but now I've got so many more opportunities and just a, a new way to live a better way to live. Yeah. Well, Austin, thank you for, for sharing all that. You know, something struck me when you talked about um, sitting on that faux leather green couch that looked out of place and it didn't belong. Isn't that ironic that that's where you were sitting when you discovered a place where you could belong? Yeah. Right? It's almost as if, you know, God sovereignly placed that couch there of like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a parallel. I'm going to give you a picture of what you thought your life has been to this point that you don't belong. There's no place for you to belong because you saw that green couch and thought that doesn't belong here. And, you know, a couple hours later, you're like, I absolutely belong here. This is where I belong. <laughs> so, and I think that's a beautiful statement about recovery in itself is recovery is about discovering your tribe. It's about discovering the people that are going to be part of that transformation journey with you. Now, one thing I do want to ask, I want to unpack a few things from your story. Yeah. One is, um, you know, obviously you, there was a lot of uh, emotional disconnect in your childhood, whether that be in your family environment, even in your church environment. Um, what was that like for you as a kid to even learn what emotions were and how to cope with them. Because obviously you did not have a very rich environment in which emotional bonding was occurring in healthy ways. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a really good question. Emotions were not okay in my house, or I should say certain emotions were not okay. Um, so any of the feel good emotions, you know, joy, um, happiness, just 
so those were okay, but anger, anger was not okay. Um, sadness was not okay. You know, I, I've, I was told several times, you know, if you're going to cry, I'll give you something to cry about, you know, mm. and then I got, then I got spanked. Um, or if I was angry, it was met by anger, either from my older brother or my dad. Um, it was okay for them to be angry, but it wasn't okay for me to be angry. So I quickly learned that, you know, my feelings were not safe with other people. They weren't even safe within myself. If I, if I was to show them, display them, um, or feel something too intensely, then it was either going to be ignored or unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Now, when, um, when you finally did get into that recovery space and really started that journey of recovery, um, talk to me about what did it look like for you to um, go through the process of forgiveness? Oof. Like when you realize, you know, many of these things, when you think about your brother, when you think about wounds that were inflicted on you, that was somebody else's brokenness getting dumped into your life. We all know that true recovery, we have to ultimately go through this process of realizing that, I mean, recognizing the distinction between what was, what I'm responsible for and what was somebody else's brokenness dumped in my life. But when we discover I'm still carrying the weight of that brokenness, Forgiveness is the only way to be released from it. So what did that look like for you, especially regarding your brother? Yeah, I'm still working through it, if I'm honest. I mean, I I was always taught to believe growing up that forgiveness is, a, is an action and it's a choice and it's a one-time event. I disagree with, with that now. Um, I, I was told that, you know, it doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter how the other person feels you need to forgive them and you need to let them know that. So that way you can, so that way they can accept it or not accept it either way. That's, that's on them. Um, and I've come to learn very differently in, in recovery that forgiveness oftentimes takes a really long time. Um, sometimes it can be short, sometimes not, not so much. And it's also, it's so it can take a while. It's a process. It doesn't always look the same from, from beginning to end. Um, it's probably filled with different emotions, sometimes anger, sometimes sadness and grief, some, sometimes maybe even joy at some points in it, but it's, it's never just static. It's, it's never just, oh, today I, I, I forgive you and forever on, and then we're done and every, everyone's happy. It also doesn't make what happened between us right or okay either. Um, so there's, there's a lot that goes into forgiveness, especially when it goes, um, towards me and my brother and, and me and some of my other family members and other people that have hurt me in the past. Um, a lot of it I'm, I'm still working on some days I have to uh, forgive them a little bit more than others. And some days I don't feel like I can, and I'm still trying to work through the different things that I can forgive them for the different things that I'm still working on forgiving them for. And, um, the things I'm still working on forgiving myself for too. There's a lot of ways that I hurt me in the process, ways that I hurt other people in the process that I hope that I can forgive myself for how I acted towards me and how I acted towards them, um, regardless of how, of, of their, of their side of, of the forgiveness process. Um, yeah. And what is your, um, what is the journey with God look like through all of this? Oh man, it has been up and down. Let me tell you, um, it's, it's been a, it's been a real, real process. 
I, I thought for a really long time that I was about as close to God as, as you could get, you know, it was like, um, God and Jesus were, were right there pretty close together, you know, and then like, maybe like God and Paul were like really close together and maybe like God and mother Teresa and they were, but then it was me, like me and God, like we, like we were there together. Like we had, we had something special. Um, I did not realize until I got to hope quest, how much I was in love with my version and my paradigm of God, um, rather than God and who he actually is and how he actually loves people because of the way that I was taught either growing up, the way that it was modeled Mm -hmm. in, in my family's relationship or in the church that I was a part of that I helped build for two years. Um, I had no idea actually how God loved people and operated. And if it looked anything like the version that I was actually picturing, picturing and imagining, um, it would not look anything like God. Um, so my, my relationship with him now and how it's been since has been a, a struggle, a journey we've, we've wrestled, we still wrestle. Um, I, I struggle a lot of times with, uh, now even thinking like, man, how can I be good enough for God? And then he has to remind me like, well, you don't, you are, mm-hmm. and that's, and that's it. And then it's difficult for me to, to accept that at times. And there, there's a lot of times where it's really, really difficult for me to, um, to love and accept Christians because of the way that I've been hurt by, by church people in, in the past and the trauma and, and stuff that I've gone through, through with that. So it's been, it's definitely been a journey. Um, earlier this year for a, a period about six months or so, I was actually uh, seeing a therapist directly for spiritual abuse recovery. Um, a, a Christian lady who actually works with with people who are coming out of church um, with church wounds and trying to help them decide like, hey, do you want to re-engage in, in the church or what's your relationship from God look moving on from here? And so that's been been really helpful, and I'm trying to still still work through what that looks like for me. Um, at the end of the day, I I know that there is a God. I know that He has a Son, and I know that that's the only way for for salvation is because of His birth, death, and resurrection. Um, and anything else beyond that, man, I I feel like I struggle. If I'm yeah. honest, yeah, that's part of the journey. So as we as we kind of come to the end of our time here, if, as you think about the the folks that are listening that are feeling like, hey, they're they're either stuck or they've never taken a step, or they're just feeling that they're maybe in a similar place to you, where it was like they've tried a whole bunch of stuff and they still keep going back to what they're doing. What would be some of the absolute top things that you would want to share with them, like either principles or practices, things that you you've discovered in true recovery that you would really want to encourage them with to help them take that next step into recovery? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So, um, on, on my computer monitors and stuff, I, I, I like to, I like to have like a little sticky notepad, um, sitting, sitting here with like a pen and I'll, I'll constantly like write things down, like whenever they come to mind or whenever I hear something from a podcast or a book or something, I'll, I'll write it down. So a, a couple of things that have, that have really helped me out. Number one, I mean, um, uh, goodness words. Number one, um, progress, not perfection. I mean, you're, you're not perfect. There, there are no perfect people. There are no perfect addicts. 
the difference between sobriety and recovery is sobriety means that you don't get knocked down. Recovery means that you don't stay knocked down. So, you know, there, there are people that go through recovery and never, never act out again. They never relapse. They never lapse. And that's, that's awesome for them. Um, I'm not one of those people. Um, I, I still struggle with my addiction. You know, I still struggle with, with sobriety at times and I'm still go, I go to a, a therapy group three times a week. Um, I still see, you know, my therapist like every, every other week trying to, you know, just still, still work on some of the basics sometimes. And for some people it takes longer than others. So when you get knocked down, don't stay down because you're worth more than, more than you probably would, would put on yourself. Don't do it alone. Um, one of the biggest things that I had to learn was that you can't change the people around you, uh, but you can change the people around you. Meaning I can't change who Jonathan is. Um, I can't change who the pastor was that or my ex-wife was, um, but I can change who I choose to be around. So this, this group that I'm in now is really affirming and really good for me. And they, they believe in recovery. They believe in me. They, they believe that, um, we can do this, but only when we're doing it together. So don't, don't stay down, find a good group of folks who are going to really wrap their arms around you. A good group of guys, good group of girls, what, whatever, whatever that looks like for you. Um, and, um, uh, just take it a day at a time because yeah. that's all we and can you know, do. One of the things we like to say all the time is that the, uh, the goal is not a destination. It's the journey. It is. And so there's gotta be a sense in which you're always growing. There's always movement that needs to be happening. And so, Whenever you get stuck, it's because you've gone stagnant, right? And so if we're always in the growth mode, then we, I think we're moving in the right direction. Absolutely. So as we wrap up here, Austin, um, how can people learn more about the Gentle Path Project and, and get connected with you? Absolutely. Yeah. So I've, I've got the easiest way to get to everywhere is to, to go to the website. I've got gentlepathproject.com. Right there, it's got all of the podcast episodes that we've recorded. It's got links to my Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok accounts. It also has uh, a contact form there that you can fill fill out your information, send me a message, and uh, that comes right to the email inbox on my phone, and I'll get right back to you. I'm normally pretty good at, at getting getting right back to those. Um, so those any any of those are are pretty easy. It also takes you to the uh, to couple of places that you can listen to the podcast, like Spotify or uh, Apple podcasts and such. Yeah. Well, Austin, thank you for being vulnerable and open with your story and, and being with us here today. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Yeah. Well, listeners, we're going to put all that in the show notes so that you can connect with Austin and Gentle Path Project. And our hope is we're here to help you take your next best step on your journey to wholeness in Christ. And so however we can do that, uh, reach out to us. We want to help you no matter where you are in the process. Um, we want to help you take that next best step. And we're glad that you've been with us. And we look forward to seeing you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio program. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.